friends, this morning we are going to continue in our short exploration here of the person of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Two weeks ago, our friend David Smock, he and his wife Meryl have been worshiping with us some over the last few months, and you're going to be seeing more of them as they discern where God is leading them towards church multiplication in the Ohio River Valley. Um, I love that our family on mission is increasingly becoming a place where people can get grounded, no, no pun intended, <laughs> they can get grounded and be sent out on mission. And that's happening in a lot of different ways through all of you. So David preached and uh, talked to us about uh, the angel's appearance to Mary and the word of God that was given to her, that through her, as a virgin, although she had never been with a man, that the Son of God, the Messiah, would be conceived in her body and delivered to the world. And David uh, explained to us that the Word of God, when it is given, and you see this in the beginning of Genesis, just like you see it in the angel's announcement to Mary, that God loves to speak into nothingness, and that when he speaks into nothing, that his Word carries within it the power to complete itself. And so I just feel like God is building up faith in us as a family in this season as we head up towards Christmas this week. And last week, we just put, a, put an emphasis uh, for a moment on Mary's poverty. Certainly her economic poverty, but also just the reality that she was a virgin, that God wanted to do this in a way that was going to bypass what humans would normally bring to the table. And we reflected that God loves to do this. God loves to speak a word into our nothingness. He loves to speak a word into our lack, into our, I said last week, and I was watching Shark Tank again last night. It's like a Saturday night thing. If you weren't here last week, listen to my sermon on the podcast. But we were saying that the gospel isn't like Shark Tank, right? Where you come and say how much you've done and how proficient your business plan is and how much assets you bring to the table, and it's just not how the kingdom of God works, that God is actually looking for people who can say, I have nothing. And we said that this is what Mary pondered, right, when she pondered these things in her heart, and we see this in the prophetic song that is sung through her by the Holy Spirit, and as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, that she reflects on what she does not have, she says, God, you have been mindful of the humble estate of your servant, of the humble state of your servant. She reflects on what she does not have. She's not afraid to reflect on what she does not have because she also reflects on who God is, who he has proven himself to be in history. And then she reflects on what God has said. And because of what she doesn't have and because of who God is and because of what God has said, actually because of all those things, she can be confident that God will perform his word. And so we said, we were just reflecting last week on this, this aspect of Mary just pondering all these things in her heart, or as David said two weeks ago, what the Greek there means is just chewing on the word that God gave her again and again and again. And we said that wander, wanderers, sorry, wanderers are worshipers, that Mary was in awe, that she had wonder about what God was doing, even though she didn't fully understand it and in that place was a worshiper. But here's where I want to take this today as we consider Mary's life just one last time before Christmas. I, here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to romanticize what I said last week 
Because this whole like wondering thing, this whole like embracing our poverty and embracing the mystery of God, I think we have to be really honest that this is some of the hardest stuff we will ever do in following Jesus. There is a sweetness to it. There is a trust in it that builds in us. There's also a lot of pain. There's also a lot of second guessing. There's also a lot of, uh, you know, wondering can be this worshipful, awe-filled place. It can also be this really scary place, right? And actually, I think the scriptures kind of demonstrate this for us in Mary's life. So the last two weeks, we have looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, in the beginning of the Christmas story and the events that surrounded Jesus' birth. Today, we're going to fast forward her story 30 plus years or 30 or so years. Um, and Jesus is a man and his public ministry has begun. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He, crowds are coming. He's healing the sick and casting out demons. He's called disciples to himself. And it's in this place, decades after, decades after Mary held the Christ child in her arms and pondered what all this could mean, these angels appearing to these shepherds and the word that was spoken to her and, and the promises of God that been given her. Decades later, I would say Mary is still pondering, still learning or walking out the word that was given to her. This is a word that's taking decades to play out in her own life about the one who would come through her. And uh, we are fortunate enough that in the scriptures, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the authors of the scriptures included not just the high points, but a few of the low points of Mary's story too. And so I want to look at one here. We'll begin in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And it will be on the screen behind me. Um, I'm reading out of the New International Version, if you want to follow along. Um, This is what it says in Mark 3.20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. Now, this is still towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and there's this phenomenon happening where these crowds are beginning to follow him and gather around him. And you get a sense of some of the chaos of this scene in the passage, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So it's like this is unplanned. You know, they go into this house, and it's just like like there aren't enough seats. There's no line for the food. You know what I mean? There's no place to sit down. There's no place. You can't fit everyone in the house. These chaotic scenes are beginning to follow Jesus. And this does happen, by the way, as Jesus works among us, as we follow Jesus. These kind of chaotic scenes can play out. And it just seems so crazy. And Mary, who raised this man, is kind of like, what is going on here, right? This cannot be good. You have to realize, for her, it's just like, this is Jesus, right? The boy, it's not like, oh, this is Jesus. Of course, crowds. It's like, this is Jesus. I changed his diapers. You know what I mean? They didn't have diapers, but you know what I mean. So for her, it's like, what, what is going on here? So Jesus and, so it's not just her. We know she's present, by the way, because of later on in this chapter, as you'll see. It's her and Jesus' siblings um, hear about this. So verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. They're like, this is crazy. What is happening with Jesus? Who does he think he is? Who do these crowds think he is? And mind you, this is after, way after Mary has received this word 
the shepherds, the angels, everything. But what a picture into where Mary is at on this day. Still trying to figure out what all of this could even mean. Um, so they go to take charge of him. Now, it's a, especially in the Gospel of Mark, it's always important in the Gospel of Mark that you read further down because Mark uses a literary technique where he loves to tell a story bracketed by other stories, by another story. So that's what he does in Mark 3. The main story in Mark 3 is about the religious leaders accusing Jesus, but he brackets that story with this story about Jesus' family. And there's actually a lot to reflect on there, but it's not what I'm preaching on today. So we'll save that for another time. So jump down to Mark 3, verse 31, also on the screen. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mothers and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, right, in this crowded house, and said, here are my mothers, mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I just want to point out something here about the internal, emotional, and intellectual struggle that Mary and Jesus's earthly siblings are having in this moment, even though they know the stories about the angels and the shepherds and all these things, pondering all these things in her heart. Here's where Mary is at today. Remember that Mary is doing in this story what she feels to be right. You need to let that sit in. It's very different than the religious leaders that attacked Jesus in this story, who are just all insecure and wanting to, uh, you know, they're already beginning like to conspire against, actually accusing Jesus in Mark chapter 3 of being demon-possessed. That is not the spirit in which Mary and Jesus' siblings come. They, they come to take charge of him, to be like, Jesus, you can't do this anymore, because they are convinced that this is right, that this is what's best. Um, I think it's important to remember this is my first point, that what isn't God's will often feels very logical to us. Let me say that again. What isn't God's will often feels very logical to us. That's how it feels. I'm talking about a feeling. When we are stepping into what is not God's will, it often feels right. We're often confident in what is not God's will. Conversely, what he's doing, what Jesus is doing in this passage, often offends our own logic. It often offends our own way of thinking. It often offends how we plan. This is totally what Jesus does in this passage. Mary and Jesus' siblings come in a very logical kind of attitude. This is uncontrollable. They misunderstand who Jesus is. Jesus is making, putting himself at the center of things. They don't understand for some reason. I don't know what their conversations were. And it feels logical to them. It feels right to them to go and stop this, right? And what Jesus does is he shows them the kingdom of God, which is really what all of Jesus' teaching is about. And in teaching them about the kingdom, he offends their own logic. And it's not that Jesus is doing something illogical, it's just that he has a different logic. You understand what I'm saying? He has a logic of the kingdom. So it's not illogical. It's not crazy. 
It's just a different logic. And here's his logic in this, in this story. Who are my mother and my brothers? It's these people sitting around me. Jesus is teaching here that a new kind of family is forming in the kingdom of God that is not about bloodline, right? Then a new kind of kingdom is, a new kind of family is forming in this kingdom where people are bound together, not because they share biological DNA, but because they share kingdom DNA, right? Not because they were born of the same mother physically, but because they were born of the spirit, right? And so Jesus offends their logic with his logic. It's not illogical. It's just a different logic. And let's just, let's just be with Mary for a minute in this passage. She is doing what she feels to be right. But Jesus is like, no, you're missing it. This is what God is doing. This thing that looks chaotic and crazy, this family that's forming, this is the thing that God is doing. Mary, aren't you able to see it? I think if we were to look where God is at in the, in the world today, we, I think we would look with eyes and a heart that has a heavy dose of, of understanding that sometimes what is not God's will feels very logical to us. That even when it feels right to us, there might be just something in us, a check, that's like, you know what? Sometimes people really get this wrong. Even people who had angels appear to them. Even people who had words spoken to them sometimes really get this wrong. I, I really feel for people in the day in which we live because we just have an unprecedented amount of information coming at us all the time. There's the memes and the articles and there's the talking heads and there's the news, the cable news stations and there is Wikipedia, and there is, you know what I mean? It just goes on and on. We really are experiencing an information flow in the last 20 years that is unprecedented in all of human history. Never before have human beings had to process so much information so quickly. Um, we honestly don't know how it's affecting us, to, to be honest. Uh, scientists are still figuring that out, how this is all going to affect our brains. You know, never before in human history. Just think about that have our brains had to process so much information. But here's, here's where I think the danger in it is. Uh, in a world where the information moves so quick, we, we process this information as isolated little bites of information, but what we don't realize is those little bits of information are part of a whole logic that feels right to the person that likes what they're hearing, right? It's part of a whole way of thinking a whole way of living. And there are different logics in the world in which we live, right? There's the logic of the different tribes of the society in which we live, the different political tribes, the different social tribes. They all have a logic. And that logic is just spewing information at us all the time. And if we like what we're hearing, it feels right to us. It feels logical. You can run it through your mind backward and forward and be like, well, this connects to this and this must mean this and this must mean this. And yet the logic of the kingdom of God has a way of offending the logic of every tribe, of every culture, of every kind of person. The logic of the kingdom of God will offend that. It's not illogical. It's just different. It's not just crazy and chaotic. It's just that it's from a different place outside of all of this and is breaking in. 
And because it comes from a different place, because it comes from heaven, this is why Jesus had to spend so much time in his teaching helping us with analogies that he would use, with stories that he would use, so that we can even begin to understand the logic of this kingdom. If you really want to like start studying the logic of the kingdom of God in scriptures, one of the best places to start is in Jesus' parables, right? These stories where, how did he start so many of the stories that he would share? The kingdom of God is like. He was saying the logic of this thing that I'm bringing, not just teaching about, but the thing that I'm bringing, the thing that I am, the logic of this thing is unlike any logic you've ever heard on the news. Is unlike any logic that you've ever heard in your tribe. Is unlike any logic that's ever been present in history. The kingdom of God is like a farmer. The kingdom of God is like a shepherd. The kingdom of God... I almost, I almost had a thing going there, didn't I, just for a second? I ran out of words, though. <laughs> the kingdom of God is like, right? Um, Jesus has to break it down at that level and give us those kinds of stories because he knows that as he spits to us what the kingdom of God is like, that it's actually going to feel wrong to us. Because the logic that we've embraced feels so right, right? Um, I find this all the time. For instance, like when it comes to the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, I'm just giving some examples here. If I added up all the times that people have come up to me and told me that a thing that the Spirit of God did, a manifestation that he gave or a miracle that he performed or a prophetic word that he spoke— all the times people have come up to me and told me that that can't be God because of some logic that they have in their minds. And, and the logic can take different forms, but it's like, I've never seen that in church. That, they didn't do that in the denomination where I grew up in. Uh, it doesn't seem like that had any purpose. I mean, all these things, it, there's always a logical argument I mean, for these things. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying we shouldn't judge these things. I've seen things that are clearly the Holy Spirit, things that are not. But I'm just saying we should expect that if this is Jesus' Spirit manifesting among us, uh, if, if Jesus offended the logic of his own mom, we might, who, who received a word from an angel and who, you know, I mean, all this stuff, we might expect that if Jesus' own Spirit is at work among us, that we, it might offend our own logic too. There ought to be at least a check in us that's like, maybe I don't, under, just because I don't understand it, just because it doesn't fit a logic that I, I bring to the table today, doesn't mean it's not God. What is the kingdom of heaven like? It creates that posture of humble curiosity that we talk a lot about around here. Or, or just this, you know, the parables are just filled all the time with these with these things about the first being last and the last being first, Jesus is telling us that there's an upside-down logic to the kingdom where God's influence and power and exertion of his kingdom starts in the most unlikely of places. If I add it up, this, I can't think of a time this has happened here at the Gospel Tab, but I can think of other places. If I added up all the times I've spoken on God's concern for the poor or where God might show up in unlikely places or all these kinds of things— and afterwards, there's people who want to 
present to me a logic that says, well, that's not like how God works in the world. Like you'd expect him like to show up in these places. And by the way, I feel for them because if Mary, the mother of Jesus, could miss it, well, so can they, so can I, right? This is what the logic of the kingdom does. It offends the way that we think that God would work. As a matter of fact, I can do this very thing. Um, Let me tell you a a story, and if you're close to me, some of you have heard it, but I think I've shared it less here. I'm not sure, but I have a a close friend that I started in ministry with. He and I just caught up um, for for lunch, and uh, he's now recruiting international workers for the Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, Our paths have crossed in these really interesting ways, but uh, we started in urban ministry together on the north side of Pittsburgh, and I, he, he had this vision in his heart when we were both 19 years old to start a homeless ministry um, on the north side of Pittsburgh. Now, number one, I never had heard of anybody starting anything before. That sounded crazy to me. I was like, who starts things? You know, Shark Tank wasn't on yet. So I was like, who starts things? I don't know anything about that. You know what I mean? So there was that piece of it. Um, uh, but also, it wasn't just that he wanted to start something. It's the way he talked like God was at work in the world or something. You know what I mean? Like, like God would answer prayer or something. You know what I mean? And so he would take these risks. Like I remember I was like, hey, how'd you end up here in Pittsburgh? He was like, well, God told me to take a bus to Pittsburgh. And he was like, so I got off here in the bus in Pittsburgh and God said, this is the place. I'm like, who lives their lives like that? You know what I mean? Like who does it? So I found myself in conversation, believing I was right, always trying to take charge of him right? Um, always trying to say, no, come on, come on over here where it's logical, right? And so I would find myself in these conversations, like almost talking him out of things, you know, being like, really? Is that going is that to work? Is that going to happen? Well, this is what, how it really works. This is how it really happens. But I think at the same time, I was reading um, a biography. I actually can't remember who it was, but in so many famous biographies about people who have done great things for God, there's at some point in their story where someone comes and tries to talk them out of it, tries to apply a logic, tries to take charge of them, right, in some kind of way. And I thought to myself, man, this is what I'm doing. Like this individual, I'm not going to be, because this guy's going to have a book written about him someday. And I'm like, I am not going to be that person in that book. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not my legacy. You know what I mean? <laughs> and... Uh, he went on to start this amazing ministry among the homeless on the north side of Pittsburgh and just have all of this, you know, impact in the lives of homeless men and women there. And, and part of what was illogical about it, right, was to see that the kingdom of God would start among the homeless in Pittsburgh. That, that if you really wanted to see a place where Jesus might be showing up, to go there. Um, that doesn't sound logical. If I added up all the times people have talked to me about you know, strategically sharing the gospel from places that the world calls influential. Listen, it's even in our value statement. We gladly proclaim the gospel at the margins of empire and at the center of its power. And if God gives us that opportunity, we'll do that as well. We want to proclaim the gospel everywhere, right? In every place. And yet, if, if I were just to guess from the Bible where we might expect movement to begin, I would say it probably is not in the places that empire says is valuable, that the culture says is significant, right? That's not how Jesus 
was born into the world. So there's this, there's this thing. And so what that means is, that this is my second point, that so much of following God is mystery. And mystery is where love happens. So much of following God is mystery. And mystery is where love happens. Think about this for a second. As you think about Mary trying to take charge of Jesus here. Mary was so close to Jesus. Has anyone physically been closer to Jesus than her? Right? Um, Jesus ended his life celibate. Right? Jesus ended his life without ever being married or being with a woman. It wasn't his mission. He lived his life as a single man. So that means, was there any other person besides his own mother who was physically, more physically close to him? Jesus' unformed body took shape within her body. Could you be any closer to this story? than Mary was, and yet there was so much that Mary did not know. There was so much that Mary did not understand. Um, I love to read. Probably nothing, honestly, I can say. Like, when people ask, like, oh, what's your hobby? I always, like, I'm reticent to say reading because it makes me sound like such a dork. You know what I mean? But everyone's like, oh, I water ski, and I play sports, and I, and I'm like, I read. You know what I mean? (laughs) But I can honestly say, I can honestly say that nothing, few things bring me more pleasure than reading about something I don't understand about, right? So this, this year, I got into a whole set of books that I really have never been into before. They're just books like science books. And science was not my strongest, um, you know, subject in school, and so maybe I've avoided those books for a long time. But I'll tell you what, I've read some stuff that is, like, fascinating to me. So I've read these books over the last year on quantum physics. And, and yeah, you, you're all rolling your eyes. Like, my kids roll their eyes at the dinner table when I bring this up. And you know what? I'm going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> right. so, so, um, so I've been, I've been reading this stuff on quantum physics, and I really don't understand it, but it's really interesting to me. And do you know that what we call space, uh, for the longest time, you know, scientists who were looking out into space thought that space literally was nothing, just nothingness. But do you know that science has progressed beyond that? And actually what we call space actually is something. It's made up of particles, right? Um, what, what physicists call those particles is dark matter, do you know it makes up maybe over 95% of the known universe, just huge volumes of this stuff. And get this, scientists don't know what it is. Over 95% of the universe, we can't even define. We don't even have a definition for what this stuff is, for how gravity interacts with it. For how, it's all this stuff that makes its way into sci-fi movies about black holes and all this stuff. It sparks our imagination because we really don't understand it, right? Now, that's on the macro level. On the micro level, and I've talked to, I'm not going to go too deep into this, I promise. I've talked to you, some of you about this, but I've been reading a book on, on fungus, all right? <laughs> and so there's quantum physics, and then there's, there's fungus, 
right? And this is one of the best books I've read this year, I'm telling you. And, and I, I won't nerd out on it too much, but do you know that every year scientists are classifying new kinds of fungus because the fungal world, I just said fungal world in a sermon, the fung- <laughs> because the fungal world the fungal world is, <laughs> it's hard to get past, is largely unknown. On the micro level, it's largely unknown. Now, let's just think about where that places us, human beings, in the scope of all of this. 95% of the universe on the macro level, we don't know what it is. On the micro level, what's happening under the soil, the vast majority of it, we don't know what it is or how it works. There's all kinds of... You know, scientists have been struggling to define mushrooms and fungi forever because it defies all these categories that scientists want to put it into. They can't understand it. So you know what that means? You and I literally live our lives. We don't know it. And this information-obsessed culture uh, tells us something different, that we can just know a bunch of stuff and be in control of a bunch of stuff. We don't even realize it, but we literally live every day in an existence where we know almost nothing. And all I'm talking about is the known universe. If that's how little we know about the created universe, imagine how little we know about God. Imagine how very little we understand about him. How very little we can conceive how very little we can wrap our minds around. It is so like nothing. And, and we convince ourselves that we know a lot. Why? We convince ourselves that we know a lot so that we can feel secure, so that we can feel safe, so that we can look smart, so that we can feel like we're in control. I'm going to go take charge of this because I know what's happening here. We're tempted into those spaces, Right? Because it can be a terrifying thing to think about how little we understand. But this is, this is the second part of what's up on the screen. But mystery, and I, actually it was a friend of ours uh, in a sister movement that uh, brought this up to us. Man, I just haven't let go of it. This wasn't an original thought. But man, mystery is where love happens. And you know why? Because of all the things that are mysterious in the world, quantum physics and fungi and all these things, Relationships really are one of the most mysterious. See, I, my marriage is not defined. Or, and it, listen, I'm using an example for marriage, but honestly, you could from friendship too. You should understand that friendships can be just as deep and mysterious in many ways. My, my marriage is not only defined by how much I know about my wife, right? Even though I know a lot about her, a lot of my existence with Chelsea and her existence with me is lived in the place of mystery. The more we live life together, the more I'm surprised about what I do not know, about what I cannot predict, about how things change over time and how, you know what I mean? Like there is so much I really can't see and understand in her own soul. And if our relationship were only based on facts, on information and on mastering that information. What kind of marriage is that? What kind of friendship is that? Isn't, doesn't love happen in the places where I don't know, where I have to take risks, where I do something and get it wrong sometimes because I don't know? 
isn't the real stuff of relationship. Doesn't it happen there in that place? And so you see the, the unknown expanse of the universe underneath our feet and in the heavens and un, what's unknown about God, it can seem so terrifying, and it is, but it is also where love happens. And I would say that even Mary's misstep here is somehow a journey in love, that somehow her getting it wrong here is actually how God is communicating himself to her. It, it opens up the space. Isn't it amazing that God is so gracious that even our missteps open up the space for God to say, no, not this, this. That's your logic. This is mine. No, you think you're my family. These are my brothers and sisters, Mary. You see, even what we do wrong opens up the space, Right? For God to communicate his logic to us. And God is not interested. He is self-revealing, like we said two weeks ago. But that does not mean, do not hear in that, that he's just interested in giving information to us. He's interested in loving us. It's his love that is his revelation. It's his relationship. There is a kind of knowing that happens in relationship that's deeper than what we can put on a fact sheet about another person, right? And this is how God loves us. Uh, you know, before the pandemic, uh, we were preaching through 1 Corinthians. And, and for those of you who remember that series, it was a while ago before the pandemic. Maybe none of you remember it. But just to, just to make a tie back to there, do you remember that a big part of what Paul's addressing with that early church in that place is how impressed they had become with their own knowing? Oh, we know a lot about God. We know a lot about the scriptures. There's one camp that was kind of that way. And there was another group, you know, who was like, no, we know a lot about prophecy. We know a lot about speaking in tongues. And one thing, some of the things that when Paul writes that letter to that church, he sounds so harsh, but I think a lot of it is just he's choosing to be unimpressed. He's just like, you speak in tongues? I speak in tongues more than all y'all, right? That's what he says. Oh, you think you know a lot? Well, I had revelations in heaven with Jesus, right? But he's not holding that up to say it's better than what you, what he's saying is, even if I had some kind of more, even if I pray in tongues more than you, even if I have a deeper revelation, none of us know anything. None of us really know at all what we're talking about here, right? Like, and for him, this is why he focuses on Jesus, right? He wants to say, I want to gaze at this man and his story and what he teaches about the kingdom of God because his logic offends mine over and over and over again. And although we know very little about God, it is in this man, Jesus, that we learn the most about him. So I'm going to look at him right? Okay, now, oh, no, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't done with that. I, I, I just want to, I, I want to say here, just to close out this point, not my sermon, just this point. I just, I just want to say here that the longer I walk with Jesus and think about who admi I admire, the less impressed I become with people who think they know things, people who think that they know the scriptures, or they know or understand the gifts, or they know, I meet people who are so sure. Um, and honestly, it's not even that I disbelieve them, because there's a lot of people who know more than me. So they really might know more than me, but there's something, sometimes I just think, I wish they could just experience love. 
in the not knowing. I wish their relationship with Jesus could move off the fact sheet, right? Into the place of not understanding. And by the way, for those of you who find yourself leading people, I want to say this. More and more, I trust the leaders who don't think that they know everything. Absolutely. More and more, that's who I trust. That's who I want to follow. I I read a a book that was a lot easier for me to understand than fungi and quantum physics. Written by a psychologist who talks about what he calls an imposter syndrome in, in leadership. You know, they have found that the most effective leaders are people who pretty much every day feel like they aren't qualified for the place that they're leading in, but they are confident enough to till, still take steps. So listen to those two things. They know they don't know everything, but they also are willing to take steps, which means that they're willing to get it wrong. Say what you will about Mary in this passage. I actually respect her willingness to take a step. It was the wrong step, but I respect her willingness to say, I gotta go get my boy. <laughs> like, what does he think he's doing? She's at least willing to engage Jesus, right? She's at least willing to lean in. She's at least willing to do something, to say something, right? And I would say, as children who know that we are eternally loved by our Father, who is a good parent to us, just like we are parents to our kids, we watch our kids take steps and get it wrong, it doesn't change our love for them, that's how God relates us, I would say we can be those same kinds of people, be like, there's so little I know, but it doesn't mean I'm paralyzed. The answer to knowing soul isn't pretending that I know more or just hoping I know more than you. All that stuff is just propping up insecurity in us. It's like, let's sit in a place where we don't know much, but we're willing to take steps and create room for other people to take steps. Now, let's fast forward the story into another one of the Gospels, the Gospel of John. Different story, but Mary shows up in it. And let's read John 19, 25 to 26 to take this home. Take a look at this. It's on the screen. Now we're at the end of the story. Near the cross of Jesus. Now just let the scene come into your mind because this is no longer little baby in Mary's arm. This is a man who has ministered and loved and healed the sick, and led his disciples, invested in them, walked with them, laughed with them, ate with them, and now he is hanging naked on a cross, bleeding, dying, gasping for breath after the betrayal, after the trial, and everybody has left him. His disciples are gone, except for one, as you'll see. One of the men, that is, you're going to see. It's the women who stuck with him. But everyone is gone, except for this little group of people. John gives us insight into this scene who was there. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, hanging from the cross, He said to her, woman, here is your son. And woman, by the way, in the Greek, as a way of addressing a person, a way of addressing his mom, carries no negative connotation like it would in our culture. It's a sign, it's a term of affection, actually. Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Now, we think that this disciple is John himself, who's writing this guy. It's so tender and so loving. He actually 
refers to himself, we think, in this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That we would all refer to ourselves that way. The defining mark of John's life became not even his own name, but Jesus' love for him. To refer to himself in the third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who are you? I'm the disciple whom Jesus has loved. My name actually doesn't matter as much as this fact that Jesus loves me. Here is your son to his disciple. Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. It's a tender moment between mother and son because Jesus is making arrangements for his mom's care with John as he is in his final moments. You just see in Jesus' humanity his love for his mom. This passage right here, more than any other in John 19, gives context and meaning to me to, to what it means when we say that Mary pondered these things in her heart. Because maybe the, the greatest amount of chewing and pondering didn't happen in Bethlehem with angels and shepherds. I think the greatest pondering, the greatest chewing, the greatest wrestling, the greatest stepping into the over 95% of the universe that we can't even wrap our minds around was looking at her boy hanging on this cross, dying. Talk about offending our logic. Talk about logic of the kingdom that offends the way we think things would play out. And I just wonder, I don't know, I mean, we just have these few verses, but I just wonder if Mary was looking at the cross. What did this scene in front of her eyes mean for the word that she had received from Gabriel, the angel, all those years ago? What was happening in her soul as she held that word for all these decades? What did this scene mean for that word? The one to be born to you. His name will be Jesus. Or he will save his people from their sins. We're so used to, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, saving them from our sins. We're like, oh, of course, it makes all sense. Is that how it felt for Mary? Sitting there watching her son bleed out? We, we have all of the advantage of perspective and hearing these things all the time and the songs and all this stuff. But did, did Mary get it in that moment? And so what did that scene mean, this ghastly scene mean for the word that God had delivered through an angel named Gabriel all those years ago? Did it mean that the word was not true? Did it mean that God was not good? Did it mean that God had changed his mind, that the word that he spoke into nothingness, that had the power to perform itself, did it mean that that word had been undercut by the Romans? Did it mean that the plan had gone wrong? Did it mean that Mary had gotten it wrong? Did it mean that Mary was not loved? Did it mean that Jesus was not loved? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does this scene mean? I think it's notable, Jake, if you could come play. I think it's notable that Mary is there when a lot of people aren't. A lot, a lot of people have left Jesus by this point, but I think it's notable. Mary has had her own struggles with the ups and downs of this crazy story of Jesus. From the time this baby boy formed in her womb without 
biological union with another man to this moment, Mary has had her ups and downs. You better believe it. Believing, not believing. Don't you think? I'm just, I'm thinking. Paralyzation and doubt. Don't you think that she has wrestled with all those things? I think that that had to be true. Don't you think that that had to be true? (laughs) But she is there. And you know, Maybe this is part of how God expands our capacity for mystery. I don't, I don't think expanding capacity for the mystery of God in Mary meant that she understood better. Do you hear what I'm saying? I don't think it's necessarily just that she had more knowledge. I think at the very least, it's that she's there. Looking right in her line of sight at the thing that seems to contradict everything that has been spoken to her for all these years. And I I just bet in this room, there are things in your life that contradict everything that God has spoken to you. Oh, let's not romanticize all this talk about like, oh, God speaks and it just happens. You know that that's not always how it plays out. And hopefully that's not what you've heard in this sermon series. That it's just a straight line from A to B. It's just automatic and simple and quick and all these things. It's just, this is a relationship. This is mystery. This is so much that we don't understand. I just see Mary at least being willing to gaze at her son's bruised and bleeding body at least willing to sit there and look at you and talk about pondering. She pondered, what does all of this mean? Hmm. I don't know if she could see it then, but man, we see it now. What the cross did mean for that word. You know, I've noted before in previous sermons, it's not just that Jesus died for us, it's that in the fullness of time, as Jesus was born of this woman, that he was born at a certain time to die a certain way. God didn't just choose the timing of Bethlehem and all these things. He also chose a time and place where Jesus would die by crucifixion. See, crucifixion had been developed by the Romans as a way to strip all meaning out of suffering. It was meant to make sure that the enemies of the state never died as glorious martyrs. That they could never die and inspire a revolution. This is, this is what, how the Romans designed this. <laughs> so that they could strip all meaning, all dignity out of the person, out of the circumstance, out of the movement that this person led. They designed a way of death that stripped meaning out of it all because it's amazing. Human beings actually have a great capacity for suffering if there's meaning involved. So many people have died for revolutions. So many people have died as martyrs. I'm not even talking about for Jesus, just for a political cause. Lots of people have given their lives for political causes. Human beings will rise up to the occasion and we will die if we feel like there's meaning. The Romans never wanted to allow it to happen. So they developed a way of death that stripped meaning out of the person, the movement that they represent. It wasn't just that they died, it's that they were mangled, beaten. 
suffering upon suffering upon suffering, hung there naked to look foolish and ridiculous, all of those things. And there's Mary looking at this, this kind of suffering, stripped of meaning, threatening to make meaningless everything that the angel said to her, threatening to make meaningless everything that God had spoken through the prophets. And yet we do know the story, right? That if Jesus' death was not meaningless, and it was not, if Jesus entered into that kind of meaninglessness and made it meaningful, made it full of meaning, so meaningful that all these years later, our lives have been transformed by this. So we sing the story, we tell it to each other. The very thing that the Romans meant to be meaningless is now most meaningful to us because of what Jesus made that cross. Well, that means that anything that we look at that contradicts the words that God has given to us, the cross means not just, please hear me, it's not just that God is going to overcome that thing. It's not just that God is going to remove that thing. There's forms of Christianity out there that are just all about that, hyping you up for the overcoming, for the removal. It's, God does do those things. So it's not wrong to celebrate that, but I see something as Mary looks at the cross that's even deeper, and it's that God's meaning is playing out in this scene, in this thing. He's at work and he's doing it. And somehow, somehow he is actually going to perform his word through the cross. Through His name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Sometimes. God performs his own word, which he had spoken through Gabriel all those years ago. It's not just like, Mary, hold on, because this will go away. It's not just like, Mary, I'm going to intervene and overcome. It's like, Mary, you can't see it right now. As you look at this, it looks like it's contradicting everything. But my own word is performing itself in this in this cross, in this form of execution, in this man, my word is performing itself. Let me just share with you a quick story. I don't know about you. The longer I li live life, the holidays are just um, a wide range of emotions, right? So much joy, so many things to celebrate, so many good memories. I'm looking forward to the next week. And yet there are things that make us sad around Christmas, right? People we miss that aren't with us, memories that come, all those kinds of things. I should talk about her more in my sermons, but some of you, only a handful of you actually in this room, knew my grandmother, my mom's mom. And around the holidays, I miss her. Um, my mom would remember her exact age when she passed, but I don't think she was 65. Um, it was in, you know, her early 60s. And when she passed, after having breast cancer multiple times, she had gotten breast cancer really young. After having breast cancer multiple times, and the third time it metastasized her lungs and then her brain. Um, when she passed, this room was just packed full of people. I am still learning about the impact of my grandmother's life. A story still reached my ears. She's buried up behind Linmar in Woodlawn Cemetery. And sometimes I still go there and just have a cry by her grave, you know? Um, she uh, uh, just had a life of faith and impact, you know? Met Jesus when she was in her 40s, I think. Um, and just really believed in him. 
You know what I mean? Like, she just really believed in Jesus. You know? And, um, you know, was so full of faith. And uh, we had some, like, healing stories along the way, you know, when she was fighting her cancer. And then it came back another time. And um, I remember one time I called, I was at Toccoa Falls College my senior year down in Georgia. And I called her. I was checking in on my grandma. She was going through cancer again. And it was November. I called her and the conversation just sounded different. And I called my mom and I said, what's going on? And she said, Joel, you should come up. Um, were we engaged yet? We were, no, we were about to be engaged. Um, and so Chelsea and I got onto a plane and flew back up, missed a few days of class, even though I was, I was about to be home for the break. But uh, my mom was like, you need to come. And we came, and I'm glad I did, because actually it was her final days of being able to talk. And so we, we made it, and you know, the chemo had just taken such a toll on her body, and now the cancer was in her brain. And so she was talking. The thing she said most frequently was glory to God. Um, and so she was sitting there on the couch. My grandma was a beautiful woman. Um, but you just tell the cancer, they just taken a toll on her body, just didn't look herself the chemo and just all these rounds of radiation. Some of you have lived this, you know. And, um, and we, I was on one side of her and Chelsea was on the other side of her. And we would just hold her hand, you know, and she'd drift off to sleep and all this stuff. And this, this is what I mean. If the cross is not meaningless and God is performing his own word in that place, he is in these things too. Something that is bad, but honestly not as ghastly. Something that is terrible, but honestly not as horrific as what Mary laid eyes on that day. My grandmother still had her dignity. You know what I mean? She did to the end. You know? Um, we were remarking on how beautiful she was even at her funeral. You know what I mean? Mary didn't even have that with Jesus. You know, how she was looking at all the dignity stripped away, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was just reflecting today on how God is performing his own words in the midst of really difficult things. This is really vulnerable, and I'm going to conceal some parts of the story because I just want to honor people. But can I tell you, I, had, I was praying for you all and for our service this morning. I'm going to share this, and then I'll wrap up. But uh, I had a, a strange memory come to my mind me and Chelsea sitting next to my grandmother. We knew we were going to hit Christmas and she was going to be gone. Um, if I'm remembering the timeline right, but it's all mixed up in my mind. I do remember the first Christmas without her. Um, but uh, I, have, I have a strange... Um, I have a strange uh, memory in my mind that I want to share with you. God brought this up to me as I was sitting here in the dark this morning. I, I'm not going to get into a ton of detail, but there was someone in my family who growing up, one way this person would control other people in the family was by figuring out how to get them to take um, psychiatric drugs. And I have all these memories of pills being passed just pills being passed, pills being passed. Um, not good at all. And you know what? I remember when Chelsea and I were sitting on either side of my grandmother, 
that person, my grandmother was confused a lot of times and hospice care was in and she needed to take these pills. Some of them were psychiatric, some of them were pain management so that she could stay calm. You know what I mean? Because she would get worried and flustered and nervous and you know, it wasn't good. So we just had to keep this under control. Hospice was helping us you know, with the medications. And it was like nobody could get her to take the medicine <laughs> except for that person. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I don't know, maybe this is disturbing for me to share with you, but I was sitting here today and I actually just thanked God for the strange ability that person had to get people to take medications. <laughs> Not because it was like right. Alan said I have a lot of pain, mem- a lot of painful memories associated with that, you know, in my family. But because somehow, even in this terrible thing, God was showing up and not just overcoming stuff, but even using the mess to show mercy, right? Um, I remembered thinking, man, they are really good at getting my grandmother to take these pills. You know what I mean? Like, and could it be that even in the mess of all of that, God's mercy is still at work? I chuckled, maybe, maybe it's too like dark and heavy for you to like chuckle about, but I chuckled because I was just like, God, you're just amazing at taking the worst things and somehow making them valuable for your people. You're just amazing at taking the worst thing, not just overcoming it, but actually using it for your glory. Um, and I think that's some of what he's gonna do in you. You know, and you know what I'm talking about because some of you have skills that weren't godly, but God is using them now, right? <laughs> some of you are able to do things that weren't right, but God is using them now, right? All right, let's wrap up. Michael, thank you, friends. I love you.